Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a CW television series that recently wrapped its fourth and final season. The show was critically acclaimed with a tomato meter score average of 98%. The fourth season finished with a score of 100%, and the critic consensus reads, carried by the exceptional Rachel Bloom and her equally talented castmates, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend's final season further explores the depths of Rebecca's mental illness with humor, heart, and humanity. Those are great reviews, and the show is worth checking out. Full seasons are streaming on Netflix. But as always here on Below the Line, we're not focused on what the critics thought. My guest today, we're all assistant directors from the show. First up, Katie Carroll, one of the first ADs. Katie, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, Gid. Happy to be here. Katie, you and I first worked together on the Hugh Jackman, John Travolta movie, Swordfish, back in 2001. Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> and, you know, looking over IMDb, it looks like you haven't taken a day off since. De- definitely feels like I haven't, that's for sure. Now, Katie, Katie, on Crazy X, you were the key second AD first season and then first did seasons two through four. Yes. That's a lot of first and seconds to be yeah. thrown. That's the problem <laughs> with- I started out as the key show. second. And then when we were picked up season two, I got a call to come in and they gave me the bump up to first AD. Now, with the wrap of the show, what are you working on now? I am currently uh, about an hour outside of Boston working on a TV show called Defending Jacob, uh, which will be for Apple TV. So I have no idea when it comes out, whenever they decide. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. Glad you're here. Next, we're joined by Lexi Caldwell, the key second AD from the show. Lexi, welcome. Thank you very much. Alexi, you were also on the show for the run. You were the second second or additional second for the first season. Uh, I'm not quite sure your credits went back and forth, but then you presumably became the key second when Katie became first. Is that correct? I think so. It kind of, it's, yes, it's a long time. Uh, Basically what happened was Katie left actually a little early season one to go do the glorious Power Rangers movie. (laughs) And when she came in, uh, a friend of ours came in to, to key and then when second season came up, Katie was firsting. The other key wasn't available, and I just realized I didn't want anybody else to take over my show. So they gave me the chance to move up, and I did. Okay, and so with the show out, what are you working on now? Uh, being a mom at this exact moment. I have a two-month-old as of yesterday. So, uh, so taking it a little bit easy for the summer, and then hopefully something new will come up. Katie's going to be gone for most of this year, so... She's dead to me. Um, but hopefully some of our other people from Crazy X will have a show coming up in July-ish, and I'll be able to hop on that. Okay. Well, well good luck, Lexi. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And then finally, we're joined by Maida Valentik, who has also been on the show from the start. Maida, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you for having me. Now, Maida, you were hired as a second, second AD, but you did all things musical. Is that correct? That's correct. I was an office prepping second, second assistant director, which is a position they brought over from the television show Glee because of the music and dance elements of the show to try and put it on any of the other staff would have been a big burden and not realistic. So they hired me to manage everything associated with music and dance. And then I would help the first ADs prep the show in any other ways that they may need. Now I want to dive a little deeper into that Um, on a show with two or more musical numbers every episode, that's a huge chunk of the work that's going to be done. But let's take a step back first and set some context. One hour dramedy, multiple musical numbers. Let's talk a little bit about how your shooting schedules were put together. 
Well, they were seven day episodes, which is a little less than standard. Most networks will do an eight day episode for an hour long show. We did seven. So that was even a tighter squeeze. CW shows tend to not have as big a budget. So we also managed to do ours for probably a lot less than most other shows. We were actually, kind of, I think, kind of proud of being like the underdog with the great ratings of uh, being literally the lowest rated show on network TV. But as I always say, someone's got to be the lowest. But we were the, you know, the little show that could. So Katie, uh, you know, let's, let's spend a moment on that. We normally, we're not terribly concerned about what the critics think, but certainly <laughs> being the lowest rated show on network television, as you said, I mean, obviously the crew was aware. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, the crew gets paid the same regardless of the ratings. The only time it starts to matter is if the ratings are enough to get us canceled. But Netflix brought the show a whole new audience. So as long as we were renewed, my rate doesn't change. If I'm the lowest rated show, or the highest rated show, I get paid the same. So it's kind of, besides working on a show with a bunch of really, really awesome people, we really enjoyed the crew. It was, it was nice to work on a show that really got hailed by the critics and it's something we could be proud of. We knew that the CW wasn't going to cancel us because yes. we won their first Golden Globe. Rachel Bloom won the first Golden Globe for the network. We won Emmys for the network. We got written up in the New York Times. They couldn't, they couldn't buy that. Um, that was an intangible that kept us on the air. And the head of the CW, Mark Pedowitz, would say that to anybody who asked. So it was really comforting. Mm-hmm. And on a side note, we may have a very small audience, but they are just the most rabid fan base you could possibly imagine. So the 10 of them that watched, watched with their whole hearts and <laughs> yes. would have done something dreadful if we'd been canceled before time. Well, while we're on the topic, so um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend went out on its own terms. It was announced early that the fourth season was going to be the last. Mm-hmm. It's uh, basically the arc of the character. Had they planned from the beginning for four seasons, or did that sort of develop as, I don't know, the ratings and the circumstances? Um, as we understand it, they'd always planned for four seasons. They've always said, like, this is, this is the theme for each season. Uh, throughout the years, we've had different lengths of season, which they weren't necessarily planning for that sort of arc, but the ideas behind each season they very much had in place. I was going to say, the, the, the issue of characters coming in and out kind of played with that theme a little bit. They had to adjust to that, but they definitely knew where they wanted Rebecca to be at all times. And I think that they looked at four seasons because of something I know we'll get into more, which is that Rachel Bloom both starred in the show, wrote the bulk of the episodes in the writer's room, also wrote a lot of the songs and managed post and publicity and everything else associated with the show as a creator. So she, she has a lifespan that we had to really um, <laughs> honor <laughs> that she couldn't do physically more than four seasons, I think. Yeah. I think that CW probably would have renewed us for at least one, if not two more seasons, but Rachel and Aline, the other, the showrunner backing her up, were just like, it just, I mean, physically, emotionally, mentally exhausted. And it's just, it's a lot to put on one person because, and she gave her whole heart to all 17 of her jobs. Besides knowing the overall arc of the story, it's like, if you're going to give everything you have to something, you can only do that and then not let it destroy other parts of your life. So you can only do that for a certain amount of time and then say like, okay, it's time to do something else. Yeah, I can imagine. So folks who are not aware, and it's, uh, as mentioned, 
Um, Rachel is central to the show as a creator, uh, credit as a writer, producer, and an actor. All of that at once. I would imagine that from the set perspective, that does create some difficult situations and challenges as far as scripts, preparation. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that was, that was definitely tricky. Scheduling Rachel or even having Rachel try to schedule herself. Um, I mean, some episodes, there was one episode where I did that, where I was first thing and she was literally not in a total of three scenes. And we had scheduled one of them. She was going to go do James Corden. And so I scheduled it. And one of them was a musical number. And she came to me like, I really need to be here when we film this musical number. And I said, I appreciate that, but you need to leave it halfway through this day. And there is literally nothing else for us to film. So we can have you sit down with the director and make sure that we get everything you absolutely want us to get. But unless we shut down as a company, there's nothing else for us to film. And she, I, and, and all credit to her because she was like, Oh, well, yeah, that's fair. I mean, once you explain certain things, she was the most um, fair-minded person and completely understood the trickeries of logistics of a show and what we had to do to try and make it work. On, on top of all the things that you were saying, like being the actress, the writer, whatnot, there are all these other moments in the day that need to be scheduled that were always, always a, a hassle, but we were all trying to get them done. Like there are meetings that have to happen, but need to happen within these certain frameworks of what everybody else is available. And I cannot say this enough, costumes, which is one of my favorite departments, uh, always got the short end of the stick because a number of her outfits are, of course, bespoke. Like they are made up from scratch. Most of her fantasy outfits aren't bought off of a rack. So getting her into a fitting just to like double check the Marilyn Monroe dress, which took like three fittings, you have to do the muslin and whatnot. We have the most incredible seamstresses who are able to come in and take five minutes and do everything they need to do somehow magically. Like you'll see five people on her at one time doing different scenes and like checking everything. And then she'll she'll change back into her costume for a shooting and go back because she'll have to do it in a setup. Like during the turnaround, that's always going to be either Rachel in the bathroom, which, you know, we had basically had to schedule for her almost or a fitting or a quick run to do an ADR line because she literally can't leave the lot to go to the ADR studio. Like there are the, the big, the capital letter things she has to do. And then there are the millions of little things. So literally once she comes to work in the morning, which sometimes she comes in before her call as an actor to do producer things until she is exhausted at night. Every minute's got something in there, which is also why I'm really glad that her husband occasionally works on our show so that she can see him because otherwise (laughs) in the meat of a TV season, you're doing three big things at once. You're shooting the current episode, you're prepping the next episode and post-production is finishing the episodes previous and three is even just a low number. It's actually post-production's finishing any given number and the writers are writing ahead any given number. So there's any amount of things that need attention from our producers. And when your lead producer is also in front of the camera for 12 to 15 hours a day, it can get very challenging. Well, the way you guys have described it, I'm surprised the show made it through its first season, much less went on for all four. How did things change over the course of the four seasons? In other words, lessons from the first season, all of you were there that helped you with the later seasons, other than, you know, casting Rachel's husband and as much as possible, for example. 
Well, uh, first off, Roger, the other first AD, and I had come from Glee. So we had a little bit of what this was going to be like in our brains. And we honestly were like, she's writing it and starring in it. And she's, no, she's, she's going to, we're going to need to have a hiatus by the middle of the first season. And to Rachel's extreme credit, she kept it together like a champion that year. We have no idea how she got through it. So we came in with a little bit of like, is this going to be possible? And they had told us from the very beginning, there would only be two musical numbers per episode, which if you've seen season one, you know, very quickly. Lies, lies, lies. utter <laughs> lies. Yes. So, so that changed just from pre-production into production and they've gone up and down. They, they have managed to pull it back for some episodes where there are only two musical numbers, but as one of our more recent episodes shows, Maida, how many numbers were in the theater episode? Seven. Seven. Oh, God. And, that was, and that was my episode, and it was the same director. We flashed back to episode 302, and he <laughs> and I, we did six musical numbers. And also in that one, we ended up having to do that episode in six and a half days. So he and I constantly joked, like, we should not have done six musical numbers in six and a half days, because that just means that they think they can hand us seven musical numbers. So here you go. You're like, Oh, come on. Just because I did it doesn't mean I had to, you know. Oh, the lessons we learned, I think, from the first season is we started to build in hiatuses in the shows, Mm -hmm. uh, usually one week. We ended up using a lot of Saturdays, which I don't know if it's a lesson or a curse, but we (laughs) ended up filming on a lot of Saturdays. I think the writers developed a really solid uh, way to incorporate the rest of the cast into their own storylines that didn't have... Rebecca in them so that we could give her some time to do other things because the the rest of the cast was fabulous and they could handle all that the writers gave them so we would do musical numbers and storylines without uh, Rebecca as the main character in them. Absolutely. I, I think they already knew the supporting cast was fantastic. I think they wanted the first season to really figure out exactly where their characters were going to go and okay, let's play to this strength, let's play to that strength. So they started to do that towards the end of season one, but season two, they really gave every single supporting cast member their own storyline, which also helped us logistically, but let the support cast really shine. So tell me a little more about scheduling with musical numbers. Are there certain days of the seven-day schedule that are dedicated to the musical numbers, or you just planning them based on locations like you would any other shoot schedule. It seems like a challenge that actually I'm personally not familiar with. Yeah, I mean, yes to all of the above. First off, you just don't get as much time as you would want for a musical number. I mean, it's kind of like a giant stunt sequence, frankly. You're like, well, we should spend all day on this. Well, no, well, we have half a day to spend on it. Uh, Some of it, if it's location-based, is going to be, well, we get this location on this day, so we better have the other elements ready by this time. Uh, If it's a stage space, more often than not, we tried to put it at the very end of the schedule. If it's specifically a costume, they needed time to build. Our choreographer, Kat, who was fantastic, needed time to not just conceptualize whatever dance number there was, but create it, rehearse it, and Maida can speak to this about, and just make sure everyone had enough time to do everything they needed for the dance number. Yeah, the rule of thumb was to put the dance numbers towards the end of the schedule for all the departments. The songwriting team may or may not have finalized the song. Choreography, if it's a 
dance heavy number needed a lot of time. And Kat would often break down complicated numbers into first working with a group of dancers that um, portrayed the main characters. It's called workshop dancing. So she would create a, a workshop that would work it out, not having to use the main cast using professional dancers, tape that, get that scene, get that approved. And then once that was set up, then she could bring in the main cast to learn the moves and to work with those workshop dancers to perfect the number. And those rehearsals still had to be scheduled around the other scenes with the, the supporting cast that we were filming. So that was its own made a hell to work with. That's where Saturdays and Sundays became really crucial for us in, I forget what episode number, but we had a number called, um, it was the big Oklahoma number and it was 10 cast and we just had to rehearse it on a Saturday. There was no other way we could get all those people in the same room during the workday, weekday. And going back to your earlier question about how things evolved, uh, I don't know if anybody else remembers the first musical number that we did, but it was so good at yoga. So, yes. so whenever we started up again, we did a few days of reshoots for the pilot, just a few little tweaky things, uh, because <clears throat> the pilot was originally filmed for Showtime, so it was a little bit more risque than what the CW was allowed to air. So we had to kind of pull back a couple things. And all of Pete's scenes as well. Exactly, all of Pete's scenes as well. And then from that, we went into, straight into episode one for us, which is episode two for the world. But it was Roger's episode, thank goodness, because again, he had, he had the backstory of Glee and knowing how to do musical numbers and all of this stuff. And so our first number was So Good at Yoga, which was a big Valencia number, bunch of guest dancer types, and Rachel in the middle. Even with all of that inherent knowledge that Roger had and that Katie's magical scheduling and all of that good stuff, it was still a small disaster, like it got done. But what we realized then was that we needed to really firm up our whole pipeline because even though like rehearsal videos had gone out, they hadn't been properly seen and approved and all of these things. So we ended up doing a bit of a read choreograph on the day. So I, I just wanna make sure that everybody understands that even with the best of intentions, the best thoughts, all of the scheduling that we can do and pregame all of the stuff, we still have the, the need to kind of adjust things on the fly. And that's something we've done over and over again, because like anything else, it's, it's a work in progress. Right. You're always continually trying to, to streamline and revamp our process so that we can edit out all of the, these small hiccups. We've, we definitely have had a couple of numbers where we've had to choreograph them a few times because we keep getting these notes on them, which I'm sure Maya can talk to. Uh, Generalize About Men was particularly tricky to get worked out. And it's one of, I think, our fans' favorite numbers, quite frankly. Um, it's in the live show that hopefully you will all have seen by this point. Um, but that one was definitely one of the ones where even in, that was season three, I want to say, so well into our process, well, well into how we know how things need to work, that one just, we had to choreograph and choreograph and Kat and the ladies were very good sports about getting pulled into rehearsals and uh, little workshops between setups while they were all still filming. Like, it's just always a work in progress. The way Maida described everything we had to do for Oklahoma, it was like, that was season four, but it was literally four seasons of learning. Between the yoga number and the Oklahoma number, 
the learning process, it wasn't just, oh, learning on season one. It was a four season. It was learning, oh, we should storyboard this. Oh, we should have a specific meeting just about the dance numbers. Uh, and sometimes we had to have those at lunch because Rachel, uh, Rachel was the showrunner for dance numbers. Aline was the showrunner for the rest of the show. So we had to schedule specific meetings about the dance numbers. Um, we storyboarded besides the costume fittings and rehearsals and then pre-rehearsals and follow-up rehearsals. So yeah, that, I mean, it was a four season learning process. Uh, season one yoga took nine hours to film. If we'd done yoga season four, it would have been about five hours to film. Yeah, I, I think I 100% agree. That's right. And that Oklahoma number we're referring to is in episode 405, the fifth episode of the season, and it's called The Group Mind Has Decided You're in Love. Looking at my record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we put into place new procedures every season to help us. Um, season four, we really tightened up the way the cast asked to be rehearsed. They really didn't want us to be trying to rehearse in the middle of the workday while they were in another scene shooting something totally different. They didn't want to be pulled into the dance room and get into a totally new headspace, get sweaty and rehearse uh, a number that was maybe filming in one to two days from then. So we really tightened up the way we rehearsed with them and, and gave them their own discrete rehearsal time separate from when they were filming other scenes. Because it, it's really hard to switch back and forth when you're trying to perform. And I will say makeup, hair, and costumes also appreciated that we stopped making them get sweaty in the middle of a scene. <laughs> that makes their lives much easier. And actually, the first ADs did as well. Like, okay, camera's ready. Now come to 10-minute touch-up because they've been sweating for 10 minutes. So I, it, it, once we figured that part out and figured out how to streamline that, it helps everything. And we're like, oh, well, yeah, this is why it would help because it helps every department. So yes, we'll keep doing this. And so Maida, you're coordinating behind the scenes. How, how much in advance are you getting the scripts that you actually know what you're trying to do? I would get the scripts usually the day before we started prep. So on day zero, which is the day before day one of prep, which is a seven day prep. So we would get them and they would either have the number already in it scripted out and I could see what elements were needed and what people were needed. Or sometimes it would say TBD <laughs> and that those three letters struck fear in my heart. But, um, well, most of the time our executive producer, Sarah Kaplan, who managed all of the logistical and financial elements of the show would already know something about what was coming and could, could tell us to start working on a given element or start, you know, looking at a Saturday because we're going to have a big number and we better reserve all these folks for that day. Um, so she would give us a heads up for longer range issues. And, but for the most part on day one of prep is when we hit the ground running, trying to um, get everything ready for production in seven days. And I would also, work with the first AD who was just about to shoot an episode and work on when Rachel had free time during then and say, okay, I'd like to schedule our dance meeting for this time. And then I'd go to Lexi and I'd say, I'm going to try and schedule our dance meeting during this time. Let's really preserve that time, even though the shooting company gets precedent over almost anything, but sometimes they were so wonderful. They, 
would think about changing the schedule for some reason and we'd say, but we have a dance meeting scheduled and they'd go, oh, well then we can't change the schedule at all simply because the people involved in those dance meetings were so tough to schedule that we almost, once we got a time that worked for everybody, we kept it. And I will say sometimes when it looked like there was a nice little chunk of time in the middle, it's a total lie <laughs> because that will be a time that's actually scheduled for a massive makeup and hair changeover for a dance, for a musical number. So like, like we, for seasons one and two, Rachel had an assistant who was fantastic and very on top of things and kept Rachel's whole world running. She's now a director. Her name is Bola Ogan. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but she'd be like, hey, I see that there's this whole strip right here that Rachel's got free. I'd like to do a meeting right there. And I'm like, you'll see that the next strip is her in a turkey costume singing to Amy Hill. So no. <laughs> because makeup and hair changes for a musical number are legitimately somewhere between two and three hours long. It's a, it's a matter of getting out of the regular outfits, completely cleaning off, putting on whatever's new. If you're lucky, there's a wig and not a prosthetic and it'll be somewhat fast, but that almost never happens. You would think it would be something very simple, but makeup and hair are very subtle and complex arts that take a large amount of time. And once that's done, they have to go into the costumes and like sometimes be sewn into the costumes. It's, it's a lesson I heard, the, I learned the, long, the hard way on Glee. It's like, whenever you think it's done, it still could have as much as an hour left. And if there's body makeup, just forget about it. <laughs> well, you reference again, we've talked about a little bit earlier that the costumes are often song specific, not in any way related to what they're wearing. They're, they're fantastical costumes as well to sort of cre create the set pieces. It's as complicated as the sets themselves in some cases, like how you would pull all that together. Oh, yes. Um, I think one of our greatest fantasy costumes, and this is perhaps controversial, is the season one, the Turk, the Nicki Minaj, I give good parent number. It's the most ridiculous and out there thing. She's number. wearing a turkey bustier. She's got sexy pilgrim backup dancers. Amy Hill is dressed like a rapper. Like she's got like a grill. So it was not, it was not simple. A number of the number of the fantasies are like that. Uh, like the Love, Love, Love Kernels. Love Kernels was a really big deal. The first the very first day of shooting of season two, we actually were all the way out the Salt Flats, which was, what, at least an hour and a half drive away? It was, you know, outside, there's a, it's a whole big thing. We had a very sp limited amount of time because we wanted to shoot very specifically at sunset. And Rachel's in two very specific looks. One is the cactus, the sexy cactus, which is one of my favorite costumes, and it was freaking hysterical. However, <laughs> she is essentially in head-to-toe in a onesie, only her face is being revealed through this giant cactus hole that is a costume. So her hair is totally pulled back and covered and pulled, et cetera. And then she has to go into this uh, flowing gown with uh, long hair, well, not totally long hair, but her regular hair. So it was a full hour and a half, two hour at least hair and makeup change to try and get it at sunset at just the right time. And the way I had originally thought, I'm like, okay, well, let's start with the trickier hair and makeup in the long flowy and then we'll go into the sexy cactus because then her hair can just be pinned back and that'll be that'll save the change over time by an hour then the director said well no because we can do the sexy cactus midday and just put a 20 by over her head and the long flowy has to be at sunset so we have because of that was one of the one things that outranks everything else was the sun can't control the sun so this is how we have to shoot it. And I mean, we made the day and it's fantastic. It's, it's one of my favorite songs, Love Kernels. But 
it was tricky. It was very tricky. Uh, we also had a specialty costume maker who made things like the sperm outfits in uh, My Sperm is Healthy, Pete Gardner's, one of his magnum opuses, and those had to be custom made. That same costume sort of, it's a slash between costume and props. Um, that gentleman also made the cats for um, the episode that you did, Katie, with the mm -hmm. cat puppets. Uh, a fuck ton of cats. A fuck ton of cats. Actually, the airing version is a but shit load. ton. Buttload. Buttload. Buttload of cats uh, is the airing version. And oh, didn't he do, he did the hearts as well. Yes. Oh, the, the hearts season? for season two um, uh, opening saga cell. We would have a saga cell every season, and that is basically the the opening credits sequence. But it was different each season. So season two had a whole Busby Berkeley set of dancers and Rachel Rebecca doing um, a really beautiful chorus line type dance. And those costumes were very intricate with big hearts that they had to wear on their backs. You know, with all the challenges, the musical numbers, the costumes, the scheduling, everything else must have just been a piece of cake. Like <laughs> 500 background. I, I think specifically like when you guys went to Raging Waters and you're putting people down the slides. There's a ton of kids running around. Like that must have been like a walk in the park compared to the rest that of it. That actually, that was a lot of fun. It was, it was really difficult and it was very stressful, but it was a lot of fun because we shot it. So <laughs> from the beginning, Rachel, Rachel who grew up in, I want to say Manhattan Beach and had this whole love affair with Raging Waters and she really wanted to shoot at Raging Waters and season four came, came around and she was like, this is our last chance to shoot at Raging Waters. So, but they still hadn't figured out where it was going to fit into the schedule or like as in which episode. So we did some early prep and way back in June and July before we even started filming the, uh, the season. And we learned that, okay, Raging Waters is open every single day of the week through Labor Day. Well, we can't do that. We can't be there when the public's there. After Labor Day, it's open on the weekends, but closed on the weekdays. But that means all the rides are running. Like that could work. But then for whatever reason, just still wasn't fitting into the scripts. And then theoretically, after October 1st, they shut down. All the water is out of the rides. They completely shut down. We're like, well, that's going to be just way too expensive for us to try and fill up with water, a full ride. And we did some research. It's like 80,000 gallons of water in one ride. It was like, it, it was way too expensive. And we kept calling them and we weren't getting much traction on like when we wanted, we realized that we wanted to film it probably late November. So we were gonna maybe pay to keep them open just to keep it running. That was gonna be cheaper than refilling. But we weren't getting any traction from reaching out to them directly. And one weekend, Rachel tweeted out, hey, Raging Waters, we really wanna film with you, but we can't get a hold of you, please contact me. That was on a Saturday and on Sunday, by Sunday morning, she had tweeted out, thank you, Twitter, we're now in contact. During the hiatus, uh, Rachel, uh, Jack, who was on the writing staff but was going to direct the episode, uh, myself, uh, Sarah Kaplan, our line producer, we drove out to Raging Waters and we walked around so we could figure out what rides are still open, what could we ride around. We literally just kind of did a tour so that we could write the scripts. We, I say we, not me. Uh, the writers could write the scripts specifically to what could be seen. And it's funny because when we were riding or walking around there, they were talking about not just doing a musical number, but doing a musical number with Rachel and her three different paramours. 
because at that point in the story, we were going to be right in the, she doesn't know who to pick of the three guys. So there was possibly going to be three small musical numbers at Raging Waters. And so as we're walking around, I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be fun. And oh, dear God, please don't. And uh, we figured out, like, as we're walking around, we figured out the, we knew we needed daylight. We knew it was going to be late November, early December after daylight saving ends. And so you have maybe nine hours of daylight at most. And we're like, okay. And we're looking at the schedule like, well, it's going to be Monday and Tuesday. We know we're going to be here Monday and Tuesday, the first Monday and Tuesday of December, rain or shine. This is what we, this is the only day we can be there. So we finished, we left Raging Waters and said, good luck and see what happened. And they told us, oh yeah, it turns out we have two rides that are still going. We still have the water in them because we haven't cleaned them out. And they were the rides that were perfect where you could go on the ride and not see that other rides were empty and they wrote the episode for that and then when it came to filming that was a whole other story but it was it was a ball actually i will say that in the initial idea of having all three boys there that that's would have been crazy mm -hmm. but basically skylar lost skylar had no desire to be in a water park in december uh, so, and he was, of course, the only one that had to get in the water. So they weren't quite as enthusiastic as Rachel was. Honestly, <laughs> Vinny, who plays Josh Chan, actually called locations and asked if he could come just ride the rides. So it would have been better for him if he had been the water park guy, but that was not the case. <laughs> so the children who were there, the background were incredibly game. They all got to volunteer. No one was forced to go in the water if they didn't want to, other than Skylar. But uh, we had so many volunteers, we actually maxed out the number of people that we had planned to put in the water. Yeah, we had volunteers from uh, crew members like, hey, can, can my kids come take a day off school? I think Maida's daughter was in there at one point, but she worked the day. I don't think she ended up going on a ride, did she? Or did she just for no. fun? No. Well, my husband didn't want her to go on a ride in December in her bathing suit. So <laughs> I, I would have, as a bad mom, put her on one of the rides. But um <laughs> Uh, I got over, I got vetoed. So, but she's in the background of, of the shots and she had a ball. Yeah. She loved it. Uh, yeah. Basically I had many conversations with extras casting cause it's, it's December and it's, it can get cold in December. Um, especially if you're in a bathing suit and water, we looked into, can we heat the water? It's like, well, you cannot heat 80,000 gallons of water. It's, it's not reasonable. I mean, they don't heat, they don't have the heaters at Raging Waters because in the summer, the water is naturally warmed by the sun. So the facilities just aren't there to heat. Uh, so we first like, okay, no, we can't heat the water. And so I finally was on the, I had a long conversation with Extras Cast. Like, okay, A, first off, I'm never going to make anyone go in the water who doesn't want to go in the water. B, we're going to give them extra money. So only volunteers who want to go are now making extra money. So it was win-win. And some of those kids... They kept, I mean, there was one point where on a ride that I kept promising, like, you're going to go on the ride. I promise you're going to go on the ride, but I need to get our actors down the ride. And then they need to go again and again and again to get the shot. After that, then you can go on the ride. Can we go now? I swear <laughs> I will let you go in a minute. Hang tight. So, yeah, that was, I, it was fun, but it was crazy. And just to give Rob Swanson an absolute shout out, he's our extras casting guy and he is tremendous. He Fantastic. does so much work for us trying to get kids who are not in school on any given day when we have children who are school age. He called us like seven times that day with this person dropped out, but I can get you somebody else within 45 minutes, which is insane because Raging Waters is not in LA proper. Like anytime you go on location, the number of people who are going to just 
choose not to wake up at 6 a.m. to come to work is fairly high. And he is, he was constantly doing his best to like get us full back up to numbers with the most willing participants he could find. He is wonderful and he does not get enough shout outs from us, I feel like. Yeah. I think he gets shout outs from us amongst each other. <laughs> we don't have the opportunity in public to give him a shout out. So well, we'll send him a link to the podcast when it comes out. So he's, his, his shout out is official. Uh, you know, Lexi, earlier you talked about Skylar being the one of Rebecca's boyfriends who came with you guys to the Raging Water scenes. Skylar, uh, Aston was playing Greg uh, on the show, which uh, there's an interesting story I'd like you guys to talk more about. Originally, it was played by Santino Fontana for the first two seasons. There was no Greg in the third season, and then they brought Greg back for the fourth season. And in the publicity materials, they talk about exploring how perception changes. What was it like working with Skylar and coming in and sort of the change in actors in this role? Well, Skylar is incredibly talented, so we got incredibly lucky there. Like, Santino is a tremendous singer and actor, and it was very good for us that we found somebody who was equally amazing to take over that role. Honestly, I think part of it, it is about perception changing and whatnot, but also the fans never let go of Greg. Like they have, they were always, well, he's going to come back, right? Like there was no version of life even after Rebecca slept with Marco. Like <laughs> they, they, flo they floated that balloon. They're just like, how is Greg going to forgive her because he's coming back, right? <laughs> so we definitely wanted to, to cap off the Greg storyline. I feel like I say we, I'm not a writer. I'm just friends with them. Now, in the other cast, though, the people, they weren't like, you're the new guy. You give them the cold shoulder, some kind of, uh, you know, we did all three seasons of this, and you're coming in here at the last minute. Well, actually, Skylar had worked with one of our writer-actors on another show. Renee uh, had been working on a show with Skylar like, five years ago. So he actually was sort of not necessarily part of the family, but maybe a distant cousin. So, and everybody <laughs> and on our show is very well versed in musical theater and that sort of zeitgeist. So they all knew who Skylar was. So they're like, oh yeah, he's one of us. Come on in. We have an incredibly welcoming cast, oh. uh, which is something you don't always find in, in Hollywood, but they are, you, you cannot say enough good things about the members of our cast. And I think that Skylar and Rachel had gone to NYU, maybe not together, but somewhat in the same circle. Yeah, they were friends before, so that's why she brought him in. Right. They knew each other from before. And the, the New York connection and the Broadway connection really made the cast so much more welcoming than a traditional only in Hollywood show, I think. I think Broadway has this like team mentality that you're all in the trenches together. And I think a lot of our cast brought that to the set and it really helped out a lot. It's so, amazing okay. how well our cast get along with you. I've never, I mean, there's one other show where our cast get along with, with that I was on where cast got along that well and they got along, but they didn't hang out as much. Our cast, they literally found a second family. Um, Michael who plays, Michael plays Tim. Tim would babysit Donna Lynn's son. Right. <laughs> or, or not even just babysit. They, like Donna Lynn would say, we're going to go trick-or-treating. He said, I want to come too. So they went out trick-or-treat. I mean, they hang out. I mean, and now that the show's over, but I mean, if you follow anyone on social media, any of the cast on social media, 
the other cast members are with them all the time. They found a new family. And so, yeah, when Skylar came in, it was like, oh yeah, welcome to the family. Speaking of the cast, I, I, I'm not sure who mentioned it earlier, but you talked about reshooting scenes in the pilot to incorporate Pete Gardner. I'm not familiar about him replacing someone from the pilot. So Michael McDonald uh, originally was going to play Daryl Whitefeather. And uh, I'm not quite sure. I think it was maybe a contractual thing that when Showtime decided not to pick it up and they spent, Aline and Rachel spent a year and a half shopping this pilot around before the CW picked it up. Uh, in that time, I think he became not available. I'm not 100% sure because that all happened before we joined the show. Uh, so they recast. So we had to reshoot all of the scenes in the pilot with Pete Gardner as Daryl Whitefeather are shot that season, like when we started season one, because Michael was not available, which is classic, because then, of course, they have to bring him in for the finale just to wrap everything up, and everything comes full circle. I feel like the character very much changed between those two actors, because they just have very different energy, and different, different things come through those characters. So I feel like from what I saw in the original pilot of Michael McDonald, he was much more straight-laced and, and harsh-ish, almost. Um, whereas I think Pete had the same lines necessarily, but they come off as sweeter and more adorably goofy coming from him. There's a lot of stuff about like really inappropriate things that, that Daryl says about like Jewish people that depending on who you are can come across as either horrifying or like, Oh, we're going to educate you, but we're not going to shun you. Yes. That's that's what Pete kind of brings to it. This, This ability to take this, character who's a little bit backwards in his own way and still make him so incredibly sweet that you want to root for him. Also, we don't need one more Michael on the cast because we have enough. Keep a track of who gets called to set. Yeah, I know. That, uh, first names can be complicated. Um, Mate, I want to throw one back to you on the cast. So uh, we've talked about how having a, a tight-knit cast, working together, everybody pulling, as you mentioned, uh, uh, sort of a Broadway mentality. What was it like to bring in guest stars who are often involved in these large musical numbers as well? And I'm thinking specifically in season four, when you've got a ton of folks in cat makeup, both for individual musical numbers and then um, all together as a group at the end, like I would think special coordination with those folks, may not, was that heavy on your side or did that not really change the, the challenge? That was heavy on my side because those people had such intense musical numbers, both the songs and then their look, that that look of getting them into the cat costume and makeup and hair. So I spent a lot of time with those four guest stars. And what was really great and what the writers and producers did so well was they brought in fans of the show who just happened to be famous actors so each one of those people were over the moon to be on our show and that goes a long 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 way to making a happy environment so they're excited we're excited we don't sugarcoat that it's going to be tough to be sitting there for three hours getting into this cat look but they all agreed to do it and then did it with uh, smiles on and then once they know I, I give them a rundown of okay the the choreographer is Kat Burns a lot of them have known her or worked with her already and she'll walk you through how we're gonna 
you're going to move in this number and we'll rehearse it X amount of time so that you're comfortable and to keep the communication process open that if it's, if there's something going on that they need help with, they can come to me or to one of our other ADs and then we can loop everybody in into issues that need addressing. So that part made it really easy because I don't, I, I think some people also came in having not sung, having not danced. And what was also really great is that our producers don't want them to be perfect. They want them to be the character. So if they aren't great singers, that's just the way the character is. And that's why they cast them. They were, the, the producers were really smart with how they use people so that they didn't put people into positions where they couldn't deliver. Um, more specifically about the cat number, I do think Roger did a really great job of scheduling that because <clears throat> the different cats had different availability issues. And we got to start with Ricky, who is somebody that we all knew from a different show we'd worked on, who's a tremendous singer and dancer, so she could move. So it was a nice entrance. And because of the way that everything had to stack up, our most um, tight schedule was on Fred Armisen, who was a delightful human being. So we obviously couldn't film all of the cats' individual numbers on the same day that we filmed all the cats together for the tag. So Fred's number had to go on that day, and everybody else got spread out. So we at least weren't trying to find four cats' looks for the first time on a day when they're all working together. We got to kind of slow roll them. If we were doing all four cats from scratch for the first time ever on the day that they were all shooting and hadn't tested it, it would have been more than the three and a half hours to get makeup, hair, and wardrobe in. It would have been more like a six-hour behemoth where makeup and hair wanted to kill everybody, and we would have agreed. So, <laughs> and I will say also, Jack Dolgen, our you know, producer, songwriter extraordinaire, played Doggy Dog. He only had one line, I think, in the entire series, but most of the writers did try to get in somewhere, and that was... <laughs> That was their special place for Jack. <laughs> and I, I think we, we have to really stress on a show like this because so much was being created from scratch and could go in a million different directions that we had a very exhaustive approval process, which helped out a lot because you can't just show up on the set and film whatever each department thinks is the best version of what we're doing. You have to get that all approved by Rachel, Aline, our producers, our director, our team, and then sometimes even run it through a legal clearance because there could be some copyright issues that we don't want to run into. So there was sort of a constantly moving approval process that um, we had to be very diligent about, and that was tricky. It was always really heartbreaking when something got approved by Rachel and Aline and everybody, and then legal said no. Like, we got, we got told no on a musical number that had been prepped but not shot yet. And we got told no, like, what, three days before we were supposed to shoot it? After all the dancers had been booked for a Saturday, no less. Like, Mado was well into prep on this one, and legal's like, you can't have that. So we're like, okay. A, how are we going to finish the episode? Like, how, how do we excise that piece? And also, how much do we still have to pay for? Which was, I think, all of the dancers at that point. <laughs> we, we got told no on one musical number after we filmed it. So the actor had to go back in and re-record to a different melody as ADR. So we had to reset, because we had already filmed it. So we couldn't 
film it again, we had to change the melody, but he still had to lip sync or he had still had to sing to what he had lip synced. And uh, so the beat could be the same, but the melody was different. It, that was weird actually when I watched it because when we filmed it, it was one thing. And then I heard, okay, we well, have to change the melody. I'm like, oh, that's a bummer. But I didn't see the final product until it aired. And then I'm watching the air. I'm like, oh, that's just weird because I had heard the original song that we had filmed so like during prep and during rehearsal, we're constantly listening to the songs. And some of them are great and some of them are not as great, but they're, you get earworms. So you get it stuck in your head. And so when I watched it aired, it was different. Like, oh, that, that throws me. But I'm forever in awe of the musical team for finding a way to rewrite the song after having it already filmed. That's impressive. And so in general, are your recording sound, but they are going into a booth to do the uh, music for air sometime after filming is complete? No, we do it beforehand. So uh, traditionally, if everything's working on all cylinders, the songwriting team delivers a demo version. A demo version is where a different person is singing it and the actor gets that version so they can learn it with the lines. And then as far in advance as we can, we schedule the actor to come in and into our sound booth on the lot and record it with the music producers supervising. Then the music producers do a little brightening and shining and polishing of that, and then turn that into the filming version. And that's delivered to me the day before the number. I give it to the sound man. I print up lyric sheets so that everyone's on the same page with the timing of each lyric. And then on the day, the actor lip syncs to that recording of themselves. And we do not traditionally record them live. That's doesn't, that doesn't usually work. There have been times where we have because the actual nature of the lyrics are so hard to lip sync to hmm. that there are times where we'll do it live. And it'll also depend on the actor's facility with live recording. Um, that'll factor into our decision making as well. But no, they they lip sync to their own voices. I will say that the 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 one the time when that doesn't happen, Mando deals with so much contractually, like figuring out when we can have actors just so that she can do anything with them. That if it's like a one off line in the middle of a song and it's like a day player actor, they get to come in half an hour early for makeup and hair, do their one line in our on the lot because they've built a sound booth on the lot to record the music part they'll come in they'll do their one line they'll go to hair and makeup and they'll go to shoot the thing and they'll have to lip sync to a demo singer in that case generally or if if our music guys have been able to turn it around magically in the hour of makeup and hair that might be their own voice but if it's somebody who's like who like anybody in josh chan's family if they have one line in a song they're recording that the day that they film they're not coming in a week early to do it you know, we talk about your cast coming together and really gelling as a group. I'm starting to guess that that was similar for the crew as well. I mean, all three of you were on for all four seasons. Was that typical across departments? Honestly, our biggest turnover, like our true biggest turnover was in our grip department. We had a different key grip the first three seasons. We had different pieces and camera throughout, but we actually had, we had more overlap in that. But, you know, our costume department was pretty steady the whole time makeup and hair was fairly steady we had a few different hair people come in and out yeah hair makeup and actually makeup and costumes did the pilot which we didn't even do they were on the pilot yeah i'd say we carried about 70 percent of Mm -hmm. the same crew from seasons one to four maybe 
and our designers, like our production designer, those guys were tremendous and they were with us the whole time. Like Steven was amazing. So. And that's actually, that's a testament uh, to the crew because we did different numbers of episodes each year. So you couldn't always necessarily plan the rest of your year very diligently. Season four, half to 60% of the crew was on another show when it came time to start Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And so some of us started- And it was the same show. We were all on the same show together. <laughs> like the, the line producer had gotten another show. So she took whatever crew she could who hadn't been hired by somebody else. So it was a lot of us. And that show ended up going long. So there was a little, that first couple of episodes of season four, it was a little bit of mix and match. We were supposed to have a week off between ending one and prepping the other one. And it ended up being just- a complete and total overlap. But just to pile on to Katie's point and to your question, you saying if we're a family or not, there are people on the this show who've been working with Sarah Kaplan since before this show started. Okay. Katie worked with her years and years ago. A large number of the designers in the office staff worked with her for years. And we hope to work with her in the future. Like she she is definitely like there is a family of the the crew and the you know the non-cast members and uh, it's been going on and off. I've been working with Katie for 10 years. Like I was saying, Katie and Maida. I worked with our other first AD on the first season on my first show as a PA in LA. Like it's, it's very much a group of people who respect each other and enjoy each other's company and would willingly work together again over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a little about being on set. How did you guys release some of the stress around a show that does have this many moving elements and, and just basic day-to-day challenges, even when things are going well. <laughs> I would say the biggest thing that our, our show does, and it's all down to props, is a thing called the toad of shame. The toad. Um, and that is the greatest stress relief when things are going badly because it's kind of like a dunce cap, but like a fun and loving dunce cap. Um, our, our props department worked on True Blood, uh, which was a vampire show, which means that about half the time you're sleep deprived, it's 4 a.m. and you're a little bit nuts. And they somehow found a dead toad and a laminator at the same time. And again, 4 a.m., sleep deprived, whatever, the toad became laminated uh, roughly seven times. Yeah, it, it, it's a roadkill toad. When they found it, it was already completely flat and perfectly preserved. So they put it on a cart, and then somebody, one else, somebody else in the props department walked by and like, well, you got to laminate that as if it's a no-brainer. <laughs> so, of course, they did. So, now it's on a lanyard. And if you do something on set that is bad, for any, any, any level of bad, you have to wear the toad of shame until somebody else does it. And then you get your picture taken and put up on the wall. And at the end of the year, Manuel, our tremendous props man, builds a trophy and presents it to the person who has the most toads for the year, um, which one year was one of our PAs. This year, it was a tie between Manuel himself and one of our dolly grips. But if your phone goes off, if you drop something, if you call rolling and the cast isn't there, if, if something breaks, it's just like a fun like, way that the whole crew can laugh with each other at each other. And it's one day, it was a Katie's episode, it was after I'd left out my baby. Uh, it was a record-breaking day of, I want to say, 16 toads. I know we got to 14 before, like within the first three hours. 
Yeah. And it, there was a point where like everyone's like something that, oh, toad. Like, uh, no, this is not a toad situation. Like an actor screwing up a line is not a toad situation. So the crew got a little toad happy. <laughs> it was 14 legitimate toads. Like someone, not just their phone going off, but then the next take, their phone went off, but it was on vibrate, but it startled them. So they dropped it. And it was incredibly loud when they dropped it. was like, are you kidding me with this? It was and like it, one thing after the other. It was amazing. Well, question then. If you already have the toad, do you actually get credited with yes. another toad? Or you, like I would think if you have it, you can't necessarily earn another one at the same time. Well, no, no you, you get your photo taken and that photo goes up on the wall. So it's like you, to you gave away the toad and then you got it back. So <laughs> it, yeah, it was a thing. And it, yes, that was a big stress reliever because inevitably it happened. Like if things are going tough and then uh, you know, somebody, something happened and like, you know, it's frustrating, but like, dude, and the whole crew starts to yell and talk. And it, it, that was a big stress relief. That was great. And then Lexi was the big proponent of another thing that helped the crew a lot, which was dress up Friday. So every Friday, Lexi would put something on the call uh, sheet saying me. season one, that was me. I seen shirt Friday. Oh, Katie, sorry. Okay, credit where credit is due. Katie started it with theme shirt Friday and then it morphed into dress up Friday. But theme shirt was first, and we've done it on a couple other shows here and there, but like wear your favorite sports team, wear the crew gear that you had on another show, everyone wear red, everyone wear a heart, whatever, on a Friday. And then we really jumped it up seasons three and four and Aline started giving prizes for dress up Friday. Like dress up in beach wear because we were filming a Beach Boys number, dress up in Western wear during the Oklahoma number, and people would get prizes, and so it became a big thing. Yeah, I definitely got it from Katie season she, in Castle years and years yeah, ago, yeah, and that's it's something right. Katie cares deeply about. But then I have absolutely no shame when it comes to dressing up, <laughs> uh, so it became very much like a full fancy dress Friday. Um, and at a certain point, we tried to tie it into whatever we were filming at any given time, but sometimes there was just nothing going on. So I would give Rachel the option of giving us ideas and her ideas were always very conceptual and very hard to do. Like dresses your inner self or <laughs> like dresses the person you wish to like something very fantasy element esque. So we would get very bad participation on those weeks. <laughs> um, one of our best weeks, I've got to say, and this is totally self-serving, was our Twins Day. Yes. Um, it was the episode where we actually had Gregor, Rachel's husband, playing twin doctors. So thematically, it was just fun to do twins. And I dressed up as our production supervisor, and our entire department dressed up as me. And I was, at the time, <laughs> seven and a half, eight months pregnant. So it was just... As, as one crew member said, look looked like an entire sea of knocked up Elsas. <laughs> so it was a number of people in blonde wigs, including all of our male staff, one of whom is a six foot four African-American gentleman with facial hair. Um, so they all had blonde wigs on. They all had on either the puffer jackets that we've been carrying for seasons or a large number of them picked up on the fact that I like to wear a red jackets. And then just tremendous different, different versions of sportswear that was... Um, my, their bellies so like half deflated beach balls and basketballs and whatnot and I will say that all of the men in our department at some point in the in the day or other was like I just went to the bathroom and I just realized how hard that must be for you <laughs> <laughs> you can't 
see, aren't there? I'm like, yes, yes, there are parts of me I can't see. So it was, we have a great group photo from that day, but it was, it was one of our best dress up days, I feel like. The other really great dress up day, Halloween. Our staff, and that's all Lexi, she spearheaded it because we would do Halloween, we would always encourage dressing up. And I think season one and season two, we just dressed up, and then Lexi, spearheaded we're going to do a group costume is that season three and four yeah so yeah seasons three and four we did the group costume so like i think it was like early right around labor day lexi would start okay what are we going to be she would start the group email let's do this so let's do how these are some ideas there are six of us there are nine of us these are how many men how many women and we would like start the conversation and if it ever lagged after a week if lexi had five minutes like we need to talk about this some more and <laughs> <laughs> what are we gonna do Season three, we were Game of Thrones mm -hmm. characters, and season four, we were Ghostbusters characters. And I will say the, the group is very game and that they will let me push them around a little bit. Like, you can always pick whatever character you want to be, but once you pick, you have to commit to it. So, like, Katie let me put extensions in her hair for, for Sansa costume for <laughs> Thrones, and, and Maida pulled out all the stops and did a Brienne of Tarth costume, which was amazing. Even our, our Roger, our other first AD, who is not traditionally a dress-up kind of man, like he's, he's, he's very team spirit-y, but he's not really the kind of guy who's going to go out and like buy costumes. He dressed up as Hodor and grew well, out he, his facial hair. Yeah, and he grew out his facial hair for that. <laughs> and like yeah. was very, he was like, oh, I can, I can get like a lady's cowl neck and an extra, extra large, and that's the perfect top for Hodor. <laughs> Last year we did Ghostbusters, and he was Lewis, which is the Rick Moranis character. And he came to work with a colander on his head. He vintage shopped the different sweaters that were options. Like he was all in in a tremendous sort of way. And we won the competition both years, right? Uh, we won Game of Thrones year and we tied Ghostbusters year with uh, costumes who were all the different kinds of pizza um, playing right into beautiful racial stereotypes. Like there was Hawaiian pizza from our Hawaiian uh, costumes person. There was Mexican pizza. There was uh, Bagel Bites pizza. Like there, was, there were all the different kinds of pizza. And it wasn't just pizza. They had a giant banner that said second meal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they came as actually honorable mention that year. And because I, I remember hearing the office PAs brainstorm it literally the night before. I was actually very impressed with the office PAs. They came as colored paper, script revisions. And then they would... <laughs> Each person, I think there were between the entire office staff, there were upwards of six of them and they, they committed and it was a last minute idea. I was like, well done. So mm -hmm. I think, and it, like all the different groups, once they realized other groups were joining in, they didn't want to be left out. And it became like this whole, like departments within themselves really got along with each other in a really great way. I will say that there was very strong showing from the assistants in the writer's building, yes. both season three and season four. Season three, they were all the Anne Hathaways. So they were like, Alden, our, our male, I think PA at the time was Les Miserables, Anne Hathaway. Uh, Aline's assistant was uh, Alice in Wonderland, Anne Hathaway. Uh, the, the PA slash writer who became a staff writer season four was the Devil Wears Prada, Anne Hathaway. And she brought that up to Aline, who wrote Devil Wears Prada, uh, before, the, before Halloween date. And the, Aline was like, do you have this cerulean sweater? And she's like, oh. I'm like, what do you mean, oh? The <laughs> <laughs> costume that is called out in the movie. You have to have that sweater. And to her credit, she found it. 
<laughs> last year, the assistants were the Breakfast Club, and they committed hardcore and looked amazing, but they did not win anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun with each other. And I mean, the other part of it was just Channel One. Everyone on Channel One, which was us in props and costumes and the office occasionally, um, just we had fun with each other. And then, you know, we'd joke when we could. And then it was like, okay, guys, actually, hang on, everyone shut up because we actually got to work for a second. But we had a lot of fun just even if we weren't hanging out together just on Channel One, which for me is everything. I will say I've worked on shows before where you don't have fun on Channel One and, and you don't generally get to, to have fun and chat and joke around on set. And there's people who will say that that's, you know, a professional work environment and whatnot. But I will say that we've worked together anywhere from on a really easy day, 13 hours to like 16 hours. And I feel like it's incredibly important to be able to have fun on channel one because you spend more time at work with us than you do with your family. And so you have to have the kind of fun and relationship you would have with people that you would choose to hang out with because these are your awake hours. And if you're not feeling like this is part of where you want to be, then it becomes a tremendous slog and you get all the burnt out crew members. So, and unlike any other, I mean, an office job, like, oh, I don't like my coworkers, but you can close your door. Or if you're in a cubicle, you still just kind of work. Our job is communicating with other people. Our job is standing next to all day long, all these different people and talking to them all day long. So half the other jobs in the world, like, okay, you can close your door. You can have, it's like, I don't like him, but I can just do my job. And then I go home. It's like, we don't have that luxury. We have to get along with everyone. So you might as well get along with them because you're going to talk to them, whether you like them or not. So I'd rather talk to people I like. You guys were a tight knit group of folks. What are your thoughts now about wrapping the series? It's sad. I mean, the, the big, um, the big live show, I couldn't be at because I was out of town on my next job. And I was just, I was texting everybody and following on Instagram and Twitter. I texted the cast like, Hey, break legs. And they texted back. We love you in a photo. And I mean, so, I mean, I'm so bummed to miss it because I think this is, it's one of my favorite work experiences ever. Every single show has re some really cool thing about it that you work, every single show you work on has some really cool thing about it. But this one, there's not one thing you can narrow down because four years were awesome. And I mean, yeah, there were downsides, but every job has a downside. That's why it's a job. Otherwise, it'd be a hobby. It's, but I'd say 90% of it was great because the people were so much fun to work with. And it was interesting and different. Uh, I will say this, this season was a little bit hard for me. And uh, in, I was on the other show over the summer, so I came in late. And then I had to leave early because I was having a baby. So for seasons one through three, I was there. I was one of the only people who was there every single day, every Saturday, every, I was always there. And so not getting to be there every day this season has been really hard for me, but I will miss this show more than probably any other show I will ever do in my entire career. I've got a little bit more space from it than everybody else because I, I finished working right before Christmas because I had a baby at the beginning of January. So I missed the last three-ish episodes, but I will say that watching the live show was just such tremendous fun and getting to work with these people, all of them, every crew member, every actor has been just one of the greatest joys 
Yeah, it it hasn't sunk in yet that it's over to me. I'm still in some level of denial. I mean, I haven't gone on to something full time yet, uh, so I, I think I've had time to reflect, but I'm sort of refusing to accept that it's over. And you know, our team was super tight, and I hope that we replicate that down the line somewhere with ourselves. And then bring that spirit to other jobs too. So that's the one thing that I loved. We know we went through something totally different in television. We weren't killing somebody at the beginning of every episode and then spending the rest of our time trying to figure out how a prostitute got murdered. You know, we were looking at stories about women and men, but mostly women that really meant something and actually had some substance behind them. And we all felt that as a crew. You, you can't help but feel that when you're there for so long each day. So we were doing something, I don't know, groundbreaking, I guess, is a, is a lofty term, but also just really inspiring, too, that, that we got to see this in a television show where you don't usually see this kind of stuff and we got to experience it all together and that it was nutty and weird and crazy. So if I see somebody associated with the show, we'll have that, oh yeah, that was a, that was a crazy show look uh, and hug to each other. And, and you don't always get that uh, in this business. So I'll treasure that part. We have a tremendously diverse show. And I, what I love about that is that we have these characters who are all these different ethnicities and we have this writing staff that's there to make it realistic like Renee is is our Filipino tech so that in season one we have I give good parent the Thanksgiving episode and we have actual Filipino food that is appropriate I just love that we have these diverse people and we get to acknowledge their stories without making it an exclamation point story like this is not the Filipino episode this is the episode about the people who happen to be Filipino and I feel like that's not something that gets seen a lot on network television by any means I don't even think Fresh Off the Boat was on the air at the time. No, it wasn't. It was a show that's not specifically about ethnic people getting to have this scene that is completely not about white people. And that's just delightful. And I just wanted to say how happy I am to get to work on a show that has that kind of diversity. We, I don't know if I'll ever, I mean, Lexi's point is so well taken. And I also don't know if we'll ever have as many female directors as we saw come through Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. They were super committed to bringing on women to direct the show. And they did that every season. And sometimes it was people who didn't, hadn't otherwise directed before and were getting their first opportunity, which was fantastic. So they'll then work, you know, in the industry at large. Aline, our show creator, got her first director credit with the season finale for season two, I want to say, which was this huge episode. Season one, it was the wedding, right? Yeah, oh, okay. I did directed the finale of season one where they were on the car and, and making out on the car. Yeah, so Aline got her first director credit and I think did every finale after that pretty much um, mm -hmm. on our show. And when we would sometimes, Roger was our honorary woman on our team as first AD. <laughs> um, because by and large, the rest of the AD team was all women. The PA team, we had a couple of guys, but... Um, when we had a female director, sometimes we'd pose for a picture and there'd be seven women in the DGA staff right there on set. And I don't know of other shows that have that. Or the fact that the top four positions 
are all women. The showrunner's a woman. The co-creator, Rachel, is a woman. The next highest ranking, like arguably uh, director, producer is Erin Ehrlich, the, another woman. Our line producer is a woman. You don't normally get a show where the top four positions are all women. It's, it's very, very different. And it even extends over to the editorial staff. A lot of the assistant editors are women. And this year, we finally got to give Kyla, who had been assistant seasons one, two, and three, I believe, she stepped up to be a main editor on the show, which was fantastic and was a long time coming. But like, there is a diversity across the board that is, is, is great. I mean, season one, we had a female camera operator, and then we did not have her back season two. But by season four, we had another female operator, which is also fairly rare. We didn't ever have a female DP, but we like the guys that we had. So, <laughs> but we had, you know, an African American DP, and our gaffer was African American. Um, quite, I mean, the whole crew was actually quite diverse. It's it was actually a very mixed up and not straightforward white crew, which was awesome. I have one other question to ask. In season four, the conceit of the intro sequence is there's another Rebecca who says something different every time. In episode nine, she says, I'm dating my uncle. And in a wide shot, the boom operator actually walks out of the shot. Is that your actual boom operator? Or did you guys cast a background artist? No, that's our actual boom operator. And he and Rachel became very good friends. So he would often crack her up. So at some point, I think we had the actress say that. And then and Aaron kind of, Aaron, the boom op kind of chuckled to himself, but quietly. And Rachel saw that. She's like, no, 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 we got to go wider. We have to see him react to that and walk away. So that actually wasn't planned. It wasn't scripted. It was just something that happened at that moment. It, suddenly the camera went wider and we're filming our boom guy on purpose. I will Maybe. say that every Friday we try to do quotes of the week. Yeah. And some of the best things that I couldn't publish were things that Rachel would say to Aaron that would just be like, no, I can't put that on paper. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing that we, uh, it, we all had this great understanding that we were in a very special work environment that allowed us to um, swear, talk about bodily functions, talk about sexual acts, and everybody took it in the spirit that it was intended, which was great fun and hilarity. Rachel would lead the charge about farts and bodily functions and then everybody else would pick up on it and it, it it would snowball from there i mean we had a song about penis like that was in the title so the the quotes we have from that week and that just production meeting were tremendous and then there was the tap that number where we had a giant sculpted butt we have a great picture of our entire team draped across the ass that they built for this number because it was quite big and so we were all we're all just hanging but out on it there, and laughing there is underwear painted on the ass so that there is not a bare ass on television now it is painted on the crack is still there but you can't see actual crack because there's painted on underwear the number of things that you say that would be questionable from an hr standpoint but are 100 percent actually necessary in our show were they were fairly vast. Well, we're really glad you guys could all come on the show today and share the behind-the-scenes stories of the show. It's available on Netflix for folks who haven't caught up. Well worth your time. Ladies, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, kid. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> 
that's a wrap on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating us and leaving a comment on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. The 80s from today's show shared a lot of photos from behind the scenes, including the toad wall and the aspic they talked about earlier. Those are available on our Facebook page at Podcast Below the Line. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, where you can find us at Pod Below the Line. If you've got feedback, send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-C. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, and thanks to John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Just search for Below the Line. And whether or not a t-shirt is for you, hope you'll join us again in two weeks. I think both those points are important, particularly these days. I mean, I will, uh, I will work with that. And right, see, thank you. Uh, it might not be there in full. Nobody get, <laughs> have their feelings hurt if certain things get dropped out. But uh, my wife says if it's longer than an hour, she's not listening to it. So. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's exactly right. But I hate, to pull out, I hate to pull out the good stuff.